When I was a student minister, I did a little um, internship at a church in the suburbs of Chicago. And one of my monthly duties was to visit a local nursing home and conduct a brief worship service. I will never forget my first one. When I walked into the room, there were a couple of dozen seniors sitting in chairs and wheelchairs in a semicircle. Some of them were already asleep. Two were clearly lost in the forest of Alzheimer's and the rest were graciously looking forward to hearing my message. Well, after introducing myself, I read the Bible passage and began preaching. A few minutes later, the ones who were graciously trying to listen began to glaze over. And a few minutes after that, a couple more of them nodded off. I was tanking big time and I knew it, but I kept on keeping on, I kept on preaching. And that's when it happened. That's when I heard the voice of an angel, an angel dressed in the white nurse's uniform, an angel standing off to the side who whispered in a stage voice, just read the 23rd Psalm. My first thought was the 23rd Psalm, that's a funeral song, not exactly what this crowd needs to hear. So I ignored her and I kept waxing on. At which point my angel gave me this non-negotiable look and whispered even louder, just read the 23rd Psalm. So I did. I looked out at my patient and said, we have a request from the audience. Listen now for God's word to you. And I began reading it. And what happened next was the equivalent of a lowercase biblical miracle. The instant they heard the familiar words of that old psalm, my congregation suddenly came alive. The glazed over ones regained their sight, the sleeping ones woke up, and one of them who was lost in the forest of Alzheimer's actually straightened up and began mumbling some of the same words with me. It was miraculous. Now, if you're old enough to remember the Emmy-winning movie, Emmy movie, Cocoon, that's exactly what seemed to be happening that day. In the movie, a group of nursing home patients sneak out one evening, break into a summer rental home next door, complete with an indoor swimming pool. Well, little did they know that aliens entered the house and charged the water in the pool with a special force, which was a kind of charging station for their alien bodies and minds. Well, that's kind of what happened at the nursing home. As soon as I began reading, the people in that semicircle waded into the still waters of Psalm 23 and instantly became more alive, body, mind, and soul. So on my way home, I thought about the angel, and I thought about the psalm, and I thought about what happened back there. And that's when it occurred to me that I had it all wrong. Even though it's a favorite at memorial services, Psalm 23 is way, way more about life than it is about death. So I invite you to join me now as I wade into the still waters of this old beauty and soak up every single word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. The best translation of that is, with the Lord as my shepherd, I have everything I need. As a result, I am not constantly in want of more and more things. People who are constantly in want live from scarcity, 
They can never get enough, and they are reluctant to share what they have with others. E.g., the Bible story of the rich man who could not let go of his possessions even for eternal life. People who shall not want, on the other hand, live from abundance and are much more generous with what little they have. E.g., the Bible story of the widow and her modest offering. Have you ever noticed that 99% of the Bible is written in black and white? Never is there any mention of a blue sky or a pink sunset. So when something is described in color, we need to pay special attention. In this case, the green grass is symbolic for God's abundance. Symbolic for I have everything that I need. And the next time, the next time the color green appears in the Bible is in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus invites 5,000 people to sit down in the green grass, and he feeds them with only seven loaves of bread. Abundance. And finally, relaxing on the green grass is also a sign of absolute vulnerability. Sheep are not the quickest animals on earth, and they are especially slow to get up. So if a wild animal comes looking for a lamb chop supper, it's all over. So for them to lie down in the green grass is an act of unconditional trust for the good shepherd. He leadeth me beside the still waters. For years, my neighbor in Little Compton, Rhode Island was a sheep farmer. And one day I paid him a visit and I said, tell me about the still waters. What's that all about? And his answer made perfect sense. He said, if a sheep is led beside a river with a swift current and suddenly the muddy bank gives way, they fall in and they are not going to get back out because all that wet wool is just way too heavy. So they would immediately be swept down the stream. If you've ever washed a wool blanket in a basin and lifted it out, you know how heavy that can be. So the good shepherd leads them beside the still stream where they peacefully wade into the still waters. And I have to tell you, I think of that line every time I baptize a little child in a church, how in that moment we lead them beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Whenever I read that line, believe it or not, I think of my mother-in-law. She has an expression that I absolutely love. When you wake up in the morning, don't get out of bed too fast. Wait a minute for your soul to come back into your body. Because while you were sleeping, it was on a journey. While you were sleeping, God was giving it a little tune-up. So don't get out of bed too fast. Rather, wait for your soul to come back into your body because God has restored it for another day. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, historically, people have equated this line with sin, that God will somehow lead us away from sinning. I'd like to offer a different interpretation of that this morning. I believe this line is about those times in our life when we are called to choose what is right over what is correct in both large and small ways. 
When Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on that bus, she did precisely that. It was her quiet choice to do what was right over what was legal and correct that sparked the civil rights movement. And for God's sake, for God's name's sake, she was arrested and taken to jail for it. And closer to home, something that's happening a lot during COVID. Ask yourself this morning, have you ever waited way too long to see your doctor? Admit it, we all have, and it happens all the time, and it can be very frustrating. And yet, how often do we stop to think about the reason we are waiting so long? Perhaps the patient before us had a sudden complication, or they presented with a depression or an anxiety that was so concerning the doctor had to spend double time with them to keep them safe. How in a quiet, understated way, the doctor chose the right time over the correct time. How for God's sake, for God's namesake, they endured the complaints of patients like us who had to wait. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because thou art with me. This is how Psalm 23 became a funeral psalm. However, here the dark valley is also about the dark valleys that we all face in life and trusting that we are not alone. I am reminded of my 30-day North Carolina Outward Bound course. There were 18 of us. Together we bushwhacked through endless acres of rhododendron. We also canoed down the river that the movie Deliverance was filmed on. 18 people with differing ages, backgrounds, and beliefs many self-proclaimed atheists. Well, that all changed the day our leaders made us climb to the top of a 200-foot cliff, and then while we were enjoying our peanut butter sandwiches, they threw a rope over the edge and informed us that we would be taking the expressway down. I've never seen so many atheists genuflect in my life. Now, the cliff was called Hawksbill for a good reason. In order to begin rappelling down, we had to gather up about eight feet of line and roll over the edge. Before we took the plunge, they had us pair off randomly. Our partner would be the person belaying us, literally holding our life in their hands. Someone who we had to trust unconditionally. As luck would have it, I ended up with a very nice lady in her mid-60s who weighed about 88 pounds. I will never forget her, and I will never forget that moment. As soon as I rolled over the edge, I heard her voice echoing down through the valley of the shadow of death. Don't worry, Richard, I've got you. Do not fear, Richard, thou art with thee. And thank God she was. And for the next 15 days, she was my best buddy. Thy rod and thy, thy staff, they comfort me. In our first reading for this morning, Jesus uses the word gate or gatekeeper no less than six times. But the disciples were not getting his metaphor. So he says it again very plainly. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate of the sheep. I am the gate of the sheep. Honestly, I didn't get it either. So I did a little research 
and I was introduced to one of the most beautiful metaphors, I think, in the entire Bible. During Jesus' time, the shepherd protected their flock at night by gathering them in a makeshift pen, a simple stone wall made out of field stone and one single entrance. And because there was no gate, the shepherd would actually lie down, rotted hand, and sleep across the entrance. The shepherd was literally their sheep gate, ever faithful and ever present. With her staff, she would keep the sheep from wandering off. With his rod, he would beat back the wild animals. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. A writer by the name of Isaac Village helped me understand this verse in everyday terms. In a Christian Century article, he writes, Several years ago, a neighbor gave me a birdhouse. It was the perfect size and structure for bluebirds. So I mounted it on a wooden post in the backyard. And sure enough, the bluebirds came. But so did the neighborhood cats. Before long, they dug their claws into the post, climbed up it, ravaged the nests, killing all the newborn. So I replaced the wood post with a metal pole, and much to my surprise, the bluebirds actually came back. And they rebuilt their nests, made some new babies, and fed them. They fed them in the presence of those same cats circling below. They fed them in the presence of their enemies. It is a wonderful metaphor for this reason. In biblical times, Whenever you invited someone to your home for dinner, whenever you invited them into your nest, you were at the same time making a promise to protect them. So dinner was not just about a meal. It was also about sanctuary in the truest sense of the word. Think about that the next time you invite someone over to your house for dinner. Think about how you should be providing them peace and joy and trust as well. Thou anointest my head with oil. For hundreds of years, anointed people were special, people who were set apart and blessed. Well, this wonderful old psalm turns that upside down and suggests that in God's eyes, we are all special, we are all blessed. That's only half of it. Anointing also symbolizes responsibility. Kings and queens are anointed to lead. And so it is with all of us. Along with the blessing comes the responsibility to be shepherds ourselves, shepherds to each other, to our environment, shepherds of justice and peace. My cup runneth over. Ask yourself this morning, are you a half-empty or a half-full person? People with half-empty cups have a kind of fatalistic view of life. As a result, they can sometimes be habitual complainers and very annoying. Well, I would submit that people with half-cup, half-full cups can be the same way. They see the world through rose-colored glasses. For them, everything is sunny side up. When things look bleak, they powder and rouge reality by offering peppy advice or positive thinking. 
The anointed in the psalmist's eyes are neither half empty nor half full. Rather, their cup runneth over. Their cup runneth over with abundance and gratitude for life. When things are not going well, they acknowledge it. They even lament it. Yet at the same time, they find a reason in all of that to give thanks. Which is why in the Protestant tradition, when we go to a memorial service for a good friend, we sit down and cry. And in the next moment, we stand up and we sing. We sit down and cry to the point where we soak those cushions. And then minutes later, we stand up and we sing. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. If we faithfully choose what is right over what is correct, we will leave in our wake a legacy of goodness and mercy. We will leave this life having made the world a better place. And finally, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This old building truly is the Lord's house. A house where we are reminded that we have everything we need. A house where we can lean back in a comfortable old pew once a week and be completely vulnerable. A house where our children and grandchildren are baptized beside the still waters. A house where our souls are restored via beautiful music. A house where for God's sake, for God's name's sake, we pray for courage when we are called to choose what is right over what is correct. A house where we can come and be reminded that even in our darkest, darkest times, we are not alone. A house where there is always a seat at the table. A house where our cups runneth over with gratitude.